This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Sam, Susanna, Noah, Lydia, and Benton. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question, and as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We'll begin with this week's serious questions. This week we have two questions, one from Sam and one from Susanna. And since in an earlier episode, I promised to try to distinguish between multiple Sams and multiple Calebs, I'll say this first question is coming from Sam V, who asks, why do we use the English Standard Version? Why is it at grace that when we read from the Bible, the English translation that we use is the ESV, the English Standard Version? We use it in our order of worship. I use it when preaching. Pretty much all the time, whenever you see references from the Bible, they're going to be coming from the English Standard Version. The reason why we use the ESV is pretty simple, actually. Uh, There's no perfect English translation of the Bible. No matter which translation you use, there's always going to be a need to study the underlying text. But I think the ESV does a good job of two things. Number one is giving us an essentially literal reading of the text. It's not as colloquial, like it's not an everyday language, so sometimes it's a little harder to understand, but it does give us a little bit more of the flavor of the original uh, diction, word order, that sort of thing, than we would get if we were using a translation that was more dynamic. So that's one thing. The other thing is the ESV does a pretty good job of preserving some of the traditions in English translations of the Bible so that when you're familiar with a phrase from the Bible that's quoted in other literature throughout the history of the English language, you're more likely to recognize those things. It doesn't have all of the these and thous that you associate with the King James Bible, but it keeps enough of that stuff so that you have a flavor, at least, of the way the Bible has been translated in English in the past. Now, having said that, of course, there are times when we will uh, correct or modify the translation or bring in other translations to try to get a better sense of the underlying text. And all of those things are good and necessary practices. Because remember, the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so if you're not a reader of those languages... You're relying on a translation, and so you always want to remember that it is a translation, that it's not perfect, and that it's always a good idea to compare translations, and if you're able to do this, to study the underlying text. But for convenience, it really helps if we can just refer to a translation that we can depend on, and that's why we use the ESV. And now Susanna asks, 
If in the Bible at first people couldn't eat meat, then what was the point of Abel being a shepherd? Well, Susanna, that's a great question, but there's a couple of things that you need to think about. So first of all, there is a good reason to uh, shepherd a flock of sheep, even if you don't get to eat them, which is that sheep can be sheared and their hair, you know, their, their fur, fuzz, whatever you want to call it, can be used to make wool, to make clothing. That's one thing. So there are uses for a flock of sheep besides just eating them. But also remember that, that Abel comes after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, and after the fall, death enters into things, and people do, in fact, eat meat. And so at the time that Abel is keeping his flock, it is actually possible for them to be eating meat at that time. So Abel's work as a shepherd had a value to his family, even if they had not been able to eat those sheep. But in addition to that, it was at that time possible to do this. And now it's time for the big question. This week, our big question comes from Noah. Noah asks, If God is such a good God, then why would he send two-thirds of his people to suffer in hell forever? Well, Noah here is thinking of Zechariah chapter 13, where we read that two-thirds of the people who are in the land are cut off and a third of the people survive. So the people in view in Zechariah are the Israelites, ethnically speaking, the covenant people of God who have received the covenant promises. But in the New Testament, there's a distinction made between people who are ethnically sons of Abraham and people who are the real sons of Abraham by faith, who share his faith. And there's a similar distinction that is operating in Zechariah 13. Setting that aside for a moment, though, just in its simplest terms, I think this question is a really good question for all of us to think about, because the Bible says that God is a good God, that he's a God of love. And the question naturally arises, if that's true, then how could he send anyone to hell? How could he condemn anyone if he is so loving. So let's take that question and think about it. Now, I have to say, first of all, that we always stipulate in the big question that there are some mysteries that we can't explain, and we need to be at peace with those mysteries. When we talk about why God does what he does, how the the mind of God and the plan of God works, inevitably we run into the, the borderland of these mysteries. And yet, there's a lot we can say about this question based on what the Bible teaches. So what I'm going to try to do is give you a bunch of thoughts to think about that are connected to this question of how a loving God could ever condemn anyone for their sin. First of all, remember this. The Apostle John writes the phrase, God is love. And when he does that, he is revealing to us and insisting that 
in a sense, we have to define love. We have to understand what love is in terms of who God is and what God does. So we can't take a definition of love in the abstract and then apply it to what God says or what God does and then judge him in terms of how loving he is being because God, by definition, is love. Therefore, everything he says and everything he does is loving by definition. So when we think about love, we might have to confront the fact that we're thinking about love wrongly. Because if we have an idea of what love is and what God says or does contradicts that idea, then surely it's our definition of love that is the problem, not God. Because again, as John says, God is love. So we start off by understanding God in his own terms, by taking what he says and what he does as the exemplar of what it means to be loving. Now, digging a little bit deeper into this, there are two uh, tensions that I want you to keep in mind. The first one is between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign, but it also teaches that human beings are responsible for their actions and for the consequences of their actions. God ordains everything that comes to pass, but he does it in a way that doesn't cancel out human freedom or responsibility. In fact, the Westminster Confession says that he establishes our liberty through his power. If you go back and look at the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, section number 1, you'll see this very clearly, that we are responsible for what we do. That includes the responsibility people have for rejecting God. When the Messiah who was promised comes, and as John says, his own people do not receive him, they are responsible for not receiving him. So that's one thing you have to keep in mind. There is no conflict between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. When people are condemned for their sin, they've sinned willingly, and they've willed that condemnation. They have rejected the grace of God. There's another tension that you need to think about here, and it's the tension between God's justice and God's mercy. Now, in the plan of salvation, God is demonstrating both his justice and his mercy. There's a holiness of God that insists on justice being done, and, and part of doing justice is punishing sin. At the same time, though, God has this desire to show mercy, and part of showing mercy is the grace that he shows to sinners. Again, we think about there being a conflict between justice and mercy, that God can either do justice or he can show mercy, just like we think he can either be sovereign or human beings can be responsible. But the Bible teaches both. So the tension is on our side, not on God's. In the mind of God, these things all work together. So people who are condemned for their sin willingly sin and willingly choose, as it were, that condemnation over union with God. Now, when we think about salvation, there's an important distinction that the 
great Presbyterian theologian B.B. Warfield makes between what he calls each and every universalism and biblical universalism. So he points out that when you look at the story of the Bible, that God saves humanity even when he doesn't save each and every individual human being. He points to the example of Noah's flood, for example. The Bible talks about how God saved the world. He saved the human race by saving Noah's family. And in the same way, the Bible describes Jesus as the Savior of the world. But as Warfield points out, he saves the world by saving the church. So, In biblical terms, it doesn't have to be each and every person saved in order for God to be saving the world as a whole. And of course, we want to understand God's words and God's actions in biblical terms. In other words, to take what he says at face value, to judge him, so to speak, according to what he's actually said, not according to what we might think of as like an abstract philosophical idea of how God ought to have behaved. So I'm not saying God is a loving God, and no matter how you define the word love, God will be loving according to any definition. What I'm saying is that God is love according to his own definition, and that there is no one in a better position to define what love is than God, who is the creator of all things. This is, of course, a very big question, and I'm not going to pretend for a moment that my answer has settled everything, but I hope this gives you enough things to think about and chew on to start thinking about the question a little bit differently. To be honest with you, the mystery is not why anyone is condemned from sin. and In a real way, the mystery is why anyone is spared from condemnation. And the only way to answer that question is the grace of Jesus Christ. And now to wrap things up, we have a couple of fun questions. We have questions this week from Lydia and from Benton. First, Lydia asks, what is your favorite holiday? Lydia, this is a hard one because I like all holidays because I am essentially a lazy person and I like to relax. And one of the nice things about holidays is you get to take a day off, to take a break from your labors. So really, I'll celebrate just about any holiday. Having said that, though, my favorite holidays are the holidays that correspond to the Christian calendar, so Christmas and Easter. And if I had to choose between the two, I would say in a weird kind of way, my preference has changed over time. When I was your age, I would have said Christmas is definitely my favorite because at Christmas I got lots of gifts and that made Christmas better than anything. At Easter, I got a basket of candy, but at Christmas I got a bunch of toys. Now, 
I would probably answer that question differently and say that Easter is my favorite because at Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the great hope of the Christian faith is that just as Jesus rose from the dead, that we too, by having faith in Jesus, will rise from the dead as well. That's what makes Easter my favorite holiday. And now Benton asks, Try writing a haiku about the book of Zechariah, then read it out loud. Hmm, well, this doesn't sound like a question. This sounds more like an order, but uh, in this case, I'll allow it. So for those of you who don't know, a haiku is a kind of Japanese poem. And the way that you write a haiku is it has three lines. In the first line, there are five syllables. In the second line, there are seven And in the third line, there were five. So it goes five, seven, and five. And it's not words, but syllables. So here's my attempt at writing a haiku about the book of Zechariah. Crown of the shepherd in the temple to testify, he will come to reign. So let me read that to you again. I'll give it to you line by line. So here's the first line, which is five syllables. Crown of the shepherd. And then the second line is seven syllables, in the temple to testify. And then the final line, five syllables again, he will come to reign. So there it is, my haiku about the book of Zechariah. I hope you're happy. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.